looking uh, into a new, uh, the beginning of a new series. I realize we're a, a week late in the Advent schedule, uh, but we had a, a missions trip to Cuba over Thanksgiving, and those of us who went kind of reported on that last week. And so we're starting our Advent sermon today, or series today, and we're just going to explore this idea of God being with us. What does that mean? What is that uh, where does it come from, this idea that God is with us? And what, what does it mean? How does it change our current reality? And so uh, for part one of this series of messages, uh, we're going to take a look at uh, the way in which God being with us changes our faith. It changes who we are and how we worship and how we relate to God primarily. And to do this, I want to I read to you in some of its context the three occurrences in the Bible of the word Emmanuel, which uh, the uh, Apostle Matthew would tell us uh, actually translates it for us when he uses that term and says it means in Hebrew, God with us. And so that, that specific word, as a name at least, occurs three times in the Bible, twice in the book of Isaiah and once in the Gospel of Matthew where he points out that the birth of Jesus fulfilled this Old Testament prophecy. So let's take a look for just a minute. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Isaiah. So imagine the country is in civil war and, uh, uh, you know, I guess we could best relate to this. The North and the South have split and... um, there's a, a prophet in the south who lives very close to the capital, and he is saying, uh, you know, the, the, the south is afraid that the north is going to join together with another enemy and invade and destroy them. And the prophet is saying to his little small band of, of brothers, um, listen, that's not actually what's going to happen. Um, they're going to band together, and then a bigger power is going to come and wipe them both out. And that, that flood of that military uh, encroachment is going to come so close to the capital that you're going to think all is lost. But I want you to remember something. God is with us. God has our back. And he's, he's going to let it get bad but he's not going to let it fall. And so that's kind of what the prophet says into this context of uh, a crescendo of military threats and political alliances. The prophet says, don't worry about all that. That's not what you need to be concerned about. Just know that in the midst of it all, God is with you. And it's going to get bad, but he's got your back. So in that context, Isaiah speaks uh, these words in chapter 7 actually to the king, and he's trying to give the king a time frame of when this invading army will come and take over the two political allies that are threatening uh, Jerusalem. And so Isaiah says it this way. Well, he says to the king, just pick a sign, pick any kind of sign from God, and I'll tell you how it relates to this situation. And the king says, I'm not going to test God. And Isaiah says, fine, God will give you his own sign. Here it is. 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And so, basically what Isaiah is doing there is giving a time frame to the current king that the king of Assyria will come and wipe out the two armies that are threatening you within the span of time that it would take for me to get married, for her to conceive, bear a son, and for that son to grow to the point of knowing right from wrong. And so he's saying within the next few years, this will take place so that you know that God has spoken through me. We're going to put that general time frame on it. Before that child knows right from wrong, the king of Assyria will have wiped your two enemies off the face of the political map. Um, In chapter 8, the prophet reiterates sort of the same thing and uses the word Emmanuel a second time. I think you'll find this interesting in that it's, it's applied differently in this passage than it was in the previous passage. So same name applied differently. See if you notice the distinction. The Lord said to me again, chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Retzin and the son of Remulah, Remuliah, excuse me. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And so here, God is, is applying this, this name, Emmanuel, to whom? Did you notice? <clears throat> to God's people who are being inundated with a foreign army. They're facing uh, grave uncertainty. Uh, if you remember in chapter 7, you remember him saying uh, that he will eat curds and honey? Does that sound pretty good? Sounds like honey-flavored yogurt, just Greek yogurt with honey. Um, the, the problem is that the, the reference to curds and honey is actually uh, a reference to all you're going to have to eat is what you can find wherever the bees are and whatever you can extract from the few remaining cows that are alive. Uh, Because the farmlands will be laid waste, the the armies of your enemies will be sitting on your farmland, and you will have nothing to eat. So it's it's sort of a prophecy of famine and despair. Things are going to get really bad, really thin, and really bleak. And in the midst of that, he says, 
But don't forget, you are Emmanuel. You are those with whom God is. And so this idea is first applied in this, in this sort of micro-prophecy, and then it's applied to God's people who are in turmoil, this, this title, Emmanuel. And then we'll read from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, where we see this prophecy fulfilled. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So there are the three occurrences of the, of the name or title Emmanuel in the Bible. And... <clears throat> You know, as we're looking at this, I, I just want you to contemplate something for a minute. When Isaiah first used this term, he was, he was giving a, a short time frame, right? This will happen uh, in, in our lifetime, in the span of the next few years, what I'm saying will come to pass, or what God is saying will come to pass, will come to pass. And this is the way... God works in history. He, he gives this sort of short-term prophecy about the coming of the king of Assyria, and he leaves his fingerprint on what he said and did. And, and that, that fingerprint, in this case, is this idea of God being with us. And so he sort of leaves this impression on the hearts of his people that God is with us. And then he holds off about 600 years and then there's a virgin who conceives by the Holy Spirit and gives birth to a son who fulfills this prophecy a second time. So there's always in prophecy there's a near-term relevance that leaves this sort of impression, this indelible mark of the hand of God on history and then it's realized again in the future, uh, either at the coming of Christ or at the return of Christ at the end of history. That's the way prophecy works. It's just God leaving his indelible marks on history so that when recurrences happen, we go, oh, that's him. He's at work again. It's the way he operates. And so we look at this 
idea of God being with us. And I guess we could begin with this question, when is it that we feel God is not with us? When, when are those times? When are we tempted to think we're alone, we're forsaken, we're without hope? And say again, when things are going badly, right? In the middle of the night, um, it, could, it could happen at any time and under any number of circumstances. It could be a diagnosis. It could be a relationship that's decaying or disintegrating before your very eyes. It could be uh, the loss of someone you love. It could be any number of things that lead us to be tempted to think, I'm alone. I'm on my own. And God says, it's now. It's now when, when the army of Assyria is at your neck that I want you to know I, I'm with you. That's what I want you to know. And so if we're going to take that truth to heart, what is it that God wants us to know through his use of this term? How does he want it to shape our faith? First, he wants us to see the desire of, excuse me, of God to be with his people. The prophet wants us to see that this is God's heart, that he wants to be the God who is with us. And so let's just talk for a moment about how this truth is manifest in the Old Testament. Um, prior to sin, what relationship did Adam and Eve have with God? Perfect. Would you say he was with them? Absolutely. Okay? They were together in the garden. God abided there with them. And when sin broke that harmony and proximity of heart, um, Adam and Eve would feel for the first time very alone. And from there we have several examples in the Old Testament of God's direct presence being with his people. I think of Abraham or, or Noah and how God spoke to Noah and the spiritual presence of God was manifest to Noah to let him know, this is what I want from you. The spiritual presence of God was manifest to Abraham to let him know, this is who I am, this is how I work. Um, God's direct presence came to Moses. Moses heard an audible voice from a burning bush. Holy cow, that would be nice. Um, and uh, so there are several occurrences, instances of God's direct spiritual presence in the hearts and lives of his people. Um, there is the establishment of God's word through Moses in a way that it had not existed prior to Moses. So because of Moses' ministry, uh, the Hebrew language is alphabetized and, code, and the word of God is codified and recorded and established for all time. So God is showing his people that through the establishment of his word, he is with them. 
He is here. He is active. Uh, I think of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. This was the box in which the Ten Commandments sat, uh, along with the staff of Aaron and, and one or two other things. Um, and it was covered in gold, and it had two uh, winged heavenly creatures whose wings sort of lifted up on either side of the, of the box, and it formed what they believed was the throne of God in the, in the heart of the midst of God's people. And so that ark was supposed to exist in the center of the lives of God's people to represent this simple idea that God is with us. Uh, you have in the life and ministry of Moses and they're wandering through the wilderness, you have the pillar of cloud by day and the fire of God by night to represent to God's people that he is there, he is with them, he is present and they're wandering in the waste and vast wilderness in which they waited. And so then in Israel's history, you have the advent of three offices. I probably should have put the priests first, but um, the kings, the priests, and the prophets, these three offices of the Old Testament, which were all intended to remind God's people that God is with us. God is with us through what the priests do. God is with us through the strength and the courage and the leadership of the king or when the king wasn't so strong or courageous or very good at leading. He reminded us of our need for God as our king. Um, and God is with us through the prophets. He is still speaking. He is alive. He is present. He cares. And the prophets, when we get to Isaiah, they point two things out to us about this idea that God will be with us as it occurs in these two instances in Isaiah. That God will at some point be with us in a greater way than he has been. That all of these Old Testament manifestations of the presence of God were the manifestations of his spiritual presence, which is real and powerful and holy and good, but something better is coming. This is what Isaiah insinuates with naming this child of his prophecy. Um, God will be with us in a greater way than he has been. And that we once again are and always will be the people with whom God resides. We are the people God is with. We are both with him, this passage reminds us, and destined to be with him or remain with him. So in Isaiah chapter 8, this occurrence of Emmanuel is actually used to describe you and me and us. It's, it's the people of God who are referred to as Emmanuel. And so in a very powerful sense, Isaiah sort of bookends this idea that there will be one who comes whose name will be God with us. And you are the people whose name is God with us. And this, will, this, this coming one will be the convergence of God's will manifest in history. So we must see the desire of God throughout all of Scripture, to be with us, that he be present in our lives and in our hearts.
And we must see our need for God to be with us. And this is best seen in the context of Isaiah, the first several chapters, where Isaiah makes it very clear as to the why of why the world is falling apart. The world is falling apart because of sin. And in this case, mostly the sin of the, of the leaders of God's people. Their um, sort of corruption and greed and bloodthirsty nature is wreaking havoc on the civilization of God's people. So, we should see our need for God to be with us. Uh, sin and rebellion are, are universal to our hearts. There are none of us who are devoid of these traits. And when they, when they crop up in ancient Israel, when we read those passages, the first thing we should do is go, oh, yeah, I'm capable of that kind of sin and rebellion myself. Um, corruption and confusion, stubbornness, selfishness. I can check everyone, right? All of these realities remind us of our need for a God who wants to be with us, who is with us. Sickness and suffering. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the context into which Emmanuel would be born and raised. This context where there's nothing left to eat of the land. No grapes, no wine, but just whatever the bees leave behind and whatever you can squeeze out of the last few cows that are still here. Um, into that context, God's presence is born into our sickness and suffering. And of course, the pending prophecy of death, which is not very uh, happy, I know, right? Um, that God is saying, yes, the king of Assyria will come. And did you notice he said he'll, he'll reach the neck. He'll flood over these hills like nothing you've ever seen. And he'll get all the way up to the walls of Jerusalem. And you know what will hold him back? The hand of God alone. There was nothing left in Israel to stave off the invasion of that army. It was, at the time, uh, the largest, most advanced, and most brutal military on the face of the earth. Uh, there was no match. And so Isaiah said, you know, these other two little regional entities that you're worried about, uh, don't worry about it. The king of Assyria will take care of that for you. He will flood in, and they'll all be gone. You'll have none of your neighbors to worry about. Oh, except for this Assyrian guy who will keep coming and coming and coming. Have you seen the, the, the ad for the game of war? Have you seen that? There's this woman on a horse, and she's got this, this huge army that she's commanding, and she says, you have nothing to fear except for about what's about to come out of those woods over there. And then this, like, 80-foot monster comes out of the woods, and everybody's like, dude. Okay. So Isaiah is sort of like her. You know, you have nothing to fear. Your neighbors, 
They won't even be here a few years from now. Oh, yeah, except for that guy who's coming over the hill over there. Um, But God says, remember, I am with you. And so when it looks bleak, when it looks like it's over, know that it's not. I have a greater plan. In fact, a plan that overcomes even death. So let's look there for a moment. That once we see God's desire to be with his people, and we understand our need for God to be with us, we find the fulfillment of this promise in Jesus. Matthew tells us uh, he's the one that he is the one in whom God comes to live with us. He brings the physical presence of God to earth. This is the change. Every manifestation of the presence of God prior to this, uh, that's maybe too sweeping. The substantial weight of all manifestations of the presence of God prior to the coming of Christ were spiritual in nature. They were God's spiritual presence coming to bear in the history of his people. This one is different. This is God himself becoming human, taking on flesh. And as he brings the physical presence of God to earth, he brings the word of God to life. So that when he is born, people read Isaiah chapter 7 differently. They go, oh, that wasn't just about Assyria. That was God acting in such a way that when he lifted his hand, uh, we can see that same impression again six or seven hundred years later uh, in the life of this baby named Jesus. It's, it's the same handprint the same God at work. And he comes to live with us in Christ and he comes to redeem us by the blood of Christ. We see in Matthew's statement that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the manifestation in history of every previous appearance of the presence of God on earth. He brings it all together. And we look at God's word differently, knowing him, seeing his fulfillment, his life at work. And so John tells us that Jesus is the living word of God. He is all prophecy, if you will. Um, He tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God, or actually John the Baptist told us that. Um, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our priest who offers the ultimate sacrifice of himself for our sins. And he is our king who reigns over our hearts and over our lives in good and in bad He came to redeem us as our prophet, priest, and king. And he brings us from death to life through his sacrifice on the cross.
Think about this for a second. Prior to Christ coming and fulfilling all that was in here, religious life was fairly complicated. You had to dress a certain way. You had to eat certain things and not eat other things. Um, You had to follow a, a fairly vast number of religious laws as well as moral laws and political laws. Um, you had to go to the temple at least once a year with a lamb and offer it as a sacrifice. And this was all part of a religious system. And it was complicated. Jesus comes along and fulfills the entire system. He obeys all the laws perfectly. He offers himself instead of a lamb as as the ultimate sacrifice. And in so doing, he brings a part of history to a conclusion. Not, he says, by abolishing it all, but by fulfilling it, by making it all come together in him. And then he says, all of this is now yours. Merry Christmas, literally. Um, I've done what the Father sent me to do. I have fulfilled it all. I've given it all. And I've shown you what love is. And so he says, come with me from death to life from this place of despair and isolation to this place of eternally knowing that God is with you. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, teach us again and again that you are with us, that you are present and alive in our hearts through what your Son did for us on the cross. And that when he ascended from the dead and sat down at your right hand, he sent to us the living presence of your Holy Spirit to fill us, to grow us, to change us, to give us life from inside. And we thank you for this gift as well, that you have brought us from death to life. And Lord, lift our heads in our despair and help us to see the light of your love each and every day. And to know in all circumstances that you are with us. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.